Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 92, and I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, how's it going this week, bud? Man, doing good, doing good. I actually was talking to Captain Sally Black this morning at Baffin Bay Rod and Gun about the fishing trip. We are trying to finalize a date, Josh. Looking late February. I know some of you have signed up. For those of you who haven't, TexasOilAndGasPodcast.com slash fishing. TexasOilAndGasPodcast.com slash fishing. Um, it'll be in the show notes as well. Go there, sign up. We're looking late February to go on the first fishing trip of hopefully many to come. I know they're excited down there at Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. Um, there's a link to their website as well, which is Baffin Bay um, Rod and Gun dot com. And so you can go check out their site. But anyways, it's a trip for four. Josh and myself will be going and along with two lucky listeners. But you have to get signed up on the website. Um, so Josh, excited about that. Um, it's cold over here, man. So <laughs> ready for it to, ready for it to warm up. And uh, you know, I, I'm just glad. I feel a sense of release. I, I know you do too. That moving forward, that we have someone to blame our mistakes on. So the show feels a lot more loose a lot more fluid now that we can blame nate for all the screw-ups so that's always it a does positive. man that was really good you know and I, I wanted to you know apologize to the listeners for a little bit of a drag in the in the audio quality last week uh thankfully we brought nate on last week so it's all his fault yeah and, way to go uh, nate yeah <laughs> we bring he, him on and it's screwed up i mean i'm not know, saying i'm not saying it's related but i am saying it happened that way well, we, so. we set the bar pretty high, don't we, Ryan? I mean, when we get on here and, <laughs> and, and do this. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan, we, we we were talking a little bit about eminent domain uh, a little while back, and um, there was an article that came out this week, pretty pretty interesting. It says that there is, uh, Kendra Morgan is having this issue with a ranch. It's like a 1,500-acre ranch that is a conservation, uh, and this guy's a conservationist, so it's uh, some special land. And we were talking about the difficulties with eminent domain, Ryan, I don't know where I land on this article, man. I read it and I thought about it, and I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure what to think about, uh, how to think about some of these issues. I mean, what, what was some of your takes? Because the issue, on one hand, is it's a huge pipeline. Texas needs it, but on the other hand, this guy has a 1,500-acre ranch, and this pipeline is about to run basically through the middle of it, and it's gonna it's gonna go through ponds, and and uh, it's gonna change the layout of his land in a significant way. And just the fact that the government has the power to force you to do that, I don't really like that too much. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's tough, Josh. We've been on both sides of this at R-Square Global. You know, we've um, helped oil and gas companies get rights to condemn, and we've, you know, looked at other things where landowners didn't want to be condemned. And so it's a tough issue. And I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, free markets and we're anti-government intervention, you know, that, that that's, you know, my general thesis is, hey, you want to talk about taxes? We'll start with no taxes. And, you know, I kind of use that as a starting spot for almost like a negotiation tactic, if you will. And the same thing here would be is you all, you want to kind of start with, no, you can't do that. But then you get into some, some practical things and you say, okay, well, um, in theory, and I think we may have brought this up last time, I know offline I brought it before, is that you could come across a landowner like this who has enough acreage to stop the pipeline from coming across. And how do you determine whether or not the pipeline is is um, is, is worth doing? And, and so they have some, 
you know, they used to say at least they would um, for the betterment of the public or whatnot. And of course, that kind of can be arbitrary whether or not you're you're actually doing that and how you measure that. And the landowner, I think, brings up some interesting points about you know, what if you moved it further to the south or further to the north or east or west or, or however you want to look at it directionally on this map at least, you know. How do they? How does he know that Kinder Morgan hasn't has done that? You know, what evidence have they provided? And I think those are fair questions to ask, and so I don't really have, you know, a strong stance on this because it, it is a tough position that you get into. You look at it and you say, well, um, how do you determine at what point you know you can take someone's property from them by use of force? Because that's what it is. It's, it's essentially use of force, and um, and at what point do you say no? Um, that this is betterment for the public. And so I, I think that's where these conversations are interesting. And I do think it is kind of pitching this article um, a little bit that, that getting condemnation rights are a little bit easier than they actually are in the state of Texas. From, I'm not a condemnation or eminent domain lawyer. Um, and we, we, I think we mentioned last time we'd love to get one on to talk about this. But you know, I know we have clients that we work for that they, they, they don't have the right. So it's not as easy as saying, hey, we're going to go do this, da-da-da. Um, but yeah, Josh, I'm always torn on these because I understand um, what the oil and gas company is trying to do, but I also am big, big believer in property rights. And you know, I, I think you look at, you look at this, you say, well, if they can, if if a if a private entity can take your your land for for a pipeline, then you know. Okay. Well, how? What? What is the burden of proof that should be there? You know, what is exactly that they should have to prove to be able to do this in court? And I don't have that answer. I think it's a question that, um, in the industry, we should always debate and think about. And you know, we we want to protect the property rights, as we said many many times. But we also want to be realistic in as far as how do we operate this um, this industry that that almost is dependent on things like this. Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's definitely a difficult, I, I think, so my first, uh, my instinct is we should stack it in favor of the private citizen uh, against the corporations, because it's a slippery slope, isn't it? And if the government wants to come in and take land, they can come in and take 100 foot, what's to stop them from taking more? Or uh, I think the private citizen should be, I think the right should be stacked in their favor, and uh, but this is this is instinctive. You know, we probably would be better off with a lawyer that understands the laws that um, that surround this issue. But if if hypothetically, if a company wanted to come in and get it, there should be a burden of proof that they have to demonstrate uh, good faith efforts to do everything that they could reasonably do to work with the landowner to make the pipeline uh, as convenient as possible. Because if there's say two ponds there that are valuable assets to the, the owner, uh, maybe there should be attempts to not destroy them or, or change them or alter them in a significant way. So there are definitely some things to, to look at and consider there, and it's something that I would interested to follow up on. As, as I know, we were talking a little bit about some laws that they were talking about changing. It was going through some congressional stuff, right, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, th- this obviously is a difficult issue for the uh, the legislators uh, for, for for the state of Texas and probably beyond. So definitely something we can follow up on. Any any last comments, Ryan, before we move on? Yeah, and, and I mean, I think this some of the things that you're saying, uh, I think that we, you know, the, we'd have to get a lawyer. We'd love to get a lawyer on just to understand the legal um, 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 sides of this. But really, I think this is a philosophical debate over, you know, it, it's kind of like with um, – with certain things, I don't really, you know, with the tax debate, you know, I know right now the big news is, 
is the, the taxing the the ultra wealthy and all this stuff. Well, to me, that I don't really care what the constitutionality of that is. To me, that's just wrong. It's immoral. So we do want to get a legal perspective on. But I think Josh, we have to think philosophically about this because when you think about something like this, let's say that you know I own a surface area, but you own the minerals underneath it, and you don't have any. You don't have at least um, on paper. Um, the physical right to access the property because you don't have the, the, the surface right. Well, you do have rights to uh, exploit those minerals, okay? Um, and so we have to work out a, a negotiation to where that you can drill, you know, um, lease and, you know, um, allow for me, uh, I have to allow you on some level to be able to drill for, the, for that acreage. And there's a process that you go through there for that. And so, you know, you get into these weird situations where it's kind of hard to take a hardline stance because you say, well, um, like, like we said, well, like you were saying a second ago, you said, well, the company has to provide a, um, you know, they have to say, well, they've done everything they can. Well, that's kind of, I, I know what you're saying, that there's there's some kind of standard, but how do we determine what that standard is? How many landowners do that to go to? And so you don't want to put the burden on business to where business all of a sudden is spending, you know, uh, you know, millions of dollars just to prove that this is the only way they could go. Because then at that point, the cost of doing the project might not be viable because they wasted all their money on um, you know trying to research if there was another uh, alternate route, which would and then you get into and get a little bit down the rabbit hole here. If the landowners knew that they had to spend that kind of money, well then they could hold out, and all of a sudden you could just have you know, landowners that were really pushing companies to the brink because they're constantly holding out because they know that well if I just say no, you go to Bob, and if Bob says no, you go to Tom, and you go to Sally, and you know and, and so on and so forth, and eventually. Um, the landowners could use that as a negotiation tactic to really string along these oil and gas pipeline companies for a long period of time. Final thing I would say is, is what if they say, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Okay, Josh, I'm interested. And you come through my property, and then I say, you know what? You're getting ready to build this sucker. Um, you've signed you know, 60% of the right away agreements across this pipeline, but you haven't signed me. Now I'm going to say no. And I know that on both sides of me that these people won't budge. So you get into all of these things that make it a very complicated issue, and that's why I'm, I think it's there's obviously the legal side of what what what's, you know the legal is what the law is what the law is, but there's these philosophical things that we we should think through and and try to be uh, I don't know what the right word here maybe prudent in um, working through these issues because they're they're very they seem very simple on one on one hand, but on the other hand they can be very complex. So that would be where I would leave it at. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, it uh, it's difficult because either side could play off the other and take advantage of it, and that's the that's going to be the difficult situation. Well, there's been a lot of news, Ryan, about water in Texas. Obviously, there's been some shortages that they've talked about. They've uh, there's been some estimates about how much water is used to uh, to drill oil and. There are these well pads, if you look at them, sometimes there will be a huge section next to the well pad where there will be a, looks like a pool liner where they fill it up with water, they use it to drill, and then they fill it back up with wastewater. So there's this water transportation issue that's been happening in Texas that is bringing some difficulty to some of the companies. And there are some startup companies that have, have really started breaking out in Texas over the last 12 to 18 months. But there was a huge sale in Texas. Uh, the title of the article is Water Emerges as the New Oil and $32.5 million Sale of a Vast Permian Basin Ranch. The location of this ranch and 
the source of water that they're that they're planning to use at this ranch is the reason why this property sold for so much more than all the surrounding areas and they're saying that it is very much to do with the water source and location and strategic way they can use it for oil and gas that brought such great value ryan i mean in in your in your time in the business oil i mean uh, water hasn't been as (laughs) water hasn't been as big of a deal as it is in the last two months would you say? Yeah, we're going to have to call it the Texas Oil and Gas and Water Podcast for too long because water, you know, this this article says that water is the new oil. And I was talking to a former guest of ours on the show the other day, um, Jose Ortega, and I kind of made the comment, you know, uh, water and sand, you know, the longer we go along and the longer drilling stays at these levels or goes even higher, the more water, the more sand we're going to see play into these equations and it's i'm not exactly sure some of these water issues especially how we're going to solve them i'm not not the water expert i think jose is actually going to come back on hopefully the next few weeks to kind of talk about where they're at right now but it was it was just kind of stunning to see this number thrown out there 32.5 million dollars that's that's a lot of money for water you would think but you gotta think what are they gonna what are they gonna make on that what's the roi on that if they're selling it for 32.5 million dollars and uh, good good for them i ain't mad good for them but yeah you wouldn't expect you know three to four years ago to see that kind of headline at least i wouldn't have and um wow it's just that's an impressive number right there just for reference here around in the permian america's busiest oil patch a producer needs to blast as much as sixty thousand barrels of water into every well every day along with sands and chemicals so 60 thousand barrels of water that's a that's an enormous amount of water that's needed to get the efficiency we've talked a little bit about these drilling is less rigs but they're still producing more oil this water usage is a big reason why they're so efficient and they're the reason they're able to produce as much oil as they are even with a less rig count Uh, the water is the huge reason why but in texas they need so much water that they're having transportation issues. So there are actually water pipelines being built uh, mm. to, to transport water so that they have a huge access or huge amount of water on demand that they can use to to get this stuff done, which for a while they were trucking it in, wasn't they, Ryan? They were, they were trucking water yeah, in last they, year. Yeah, they've been, you know, this building the pipelines and all this stuff has been, um, you know, kind of trying to play catch up on some level. But let me circle back here. You said 60,000 barrels, right? Yes. And this this ranch could pump as many as 400,000 barrels of water a day for 20 years. Okay, so I, I just I just did the quick math there. So if you just say 400,000, right, hmm. divide that by 60,000, that means that for you could do 6.6 wells worth of water every day. So you multiply that times 365, that's 2,400 and 33 wells uh, a year, and multiply it times 20, that's 48,666 wells over the, the next 20 years that this um, this one ranch could produce for. So I don't know what they're getting for the water price, but it seems like they, uh, you know, it seems like they, they'll probably do pretty good on those 50,000 wells they'll the cover um, over the next 20 years. So, uh I would they'll estimate probably buy a few ranches after that. Yeah, they. I would estimate they'll probably be they'll probably be looking pretty good by the end of the year. Honestly, <laughs> other nineteen years will be all gravy. Mm-hmm. I would. I would yeah. think. Uh, well, Ron, you, we we talked a little bit about uh, a couple 
maybe a year, year and a half ago, we joked instead of calling the Texas Oil and Water Podcast, it was going to be the Texas and Mexico Podcast. Uh, Texas yeah, oil Texas and, Oil, Gas, Water, and Mexico. And Mexico. Yeah, we, <laughs> and Mexico. <laughs> Mexico was a huge deal. It was it was all over the news. We were constantly talking about it, and all of a sudden, we just kind of kind of stopped mm-hmm. for for some time. I think there was a new president that came in. Mm-hmm. There was some doubts as to how everything was going to play out. But an article came out from Forbes this week. Michael Lynch wrote an article titled, Could Mexico Again Be an Oil Superpower? Uh, so the the president of Mexico, uh, that, well, just to backtrack a little bit, there were several deals that were going to be uh, in, in, in Concord working together with Texas companies and Mexico companies to build pipelines of supply energy to Mexico. And there was huge opportunities for some U.S.-based companies located in Texas to provide some of that energy, some of that oil, and to help build some of those structures. Well, when the new president came in, there were doubts as to how these deals were going to move forward. What has been the, the general feel, Ryan, for the Mexico-U.S. relations since the new president's come in? And I mean, what were your thoughts on, on the article and kind of the direction that everything's headed? Yeah, I, I think, Josh, the, the feel has kind of been that of, um, it depends on who you ask. You know, some people are um, very optimistic that the new president is going to do the right thing and that the deals that were in place are going to continue to honor. And then some people are, are, are kind of worried about, about the, the future of Mexico. And I think this piece does a good thing because sometimes we talk about deals like this in, in very large terms, very grandiose type you know good for mexico bad for mexico but but uh lynch here michael lynch here does a makes a good point and i'm trying to find the piece but he basically says that um yeah here it is while pmex and private companies focus on finding elephants as giant fields are called the possibility that smaller companies could undertake rehabilitation of marginal fields as happened 20 years ago in venezuela where about 500,000 barrels a day production was added and i think that when i read that that's that's a great point is that we're always talking about you know millions of barrels a day here millions of barrels a day there um you know, big company here big company there but there's there's things that could happen with the private sector being able to enter Mexico that, like he just brought up, which I thought was a, was a very good point, is that we're not even looking at. There's, you know, old fields that could be revitalized, um, things that could be done that we're probably not thinking of because we're thinking in very macro terms that could help the Mexican economy, help the Mexican oil and gas market. And, you know, I, I don't know where, where Mexico is going to go. I think Sergio said they have a six-year term. Uh, on the president when he came on the last time. So I, I'm not really sure where it's going to head, Josh, but um, I think we've made our, our position pretty clear. The more that the U.S. and Mexico can work together on stuff like this, um, and, you know, in any other country that can bring value to Mexico's oil and gas economy, that the better it will be for everyone involved. And I thought that point right there of, you know, some small company in the U.S. that has a, a specific skill set that can't compete with a, you know, a BP or a Chesapeake or a Marathon or a Kinder Morgan or, or whatever from, you know, drilling to pipelines or whatever it may be, but they have a very a very niche business they might could bring down to Mexico and might could help out um, in ways that people aren't currently looking at. And here's a little comment that the author makes. He says, finally, Mexico has unexploited shale resources, as the first table shows. Eagleford shale, it extends into uh, the Mexican side and could be a, make a contribution to Mexican production. It won't necessarily be as much as U.S. small companies. But he also makes this comment, ultimately, while Mexico might achieve production of 250,000 barrels a day for, per year that Venezuela, 
Venezuela did after reform in the 90s, but this will require a continuation of the new energy model that the previous administration enacted. Mm-hmm. So he makes the comment that it was the administration before the one that's there that made mm-hmm. these changes that were going to allow them to be a, a bigger player in the world in energy sector and scene, and that now that's that, that status is in question. We're not really sure how they're going to move forward. And like you mentioned, if there's so much opportunity and potential, um, not only for oil and gas companies, but for the the country of Mexico and all the people there the, to get readily available energy in the next five years would be fantastic for the, the country as a whole. Yeah, creates good jobs, you know, brings, um, you know, dollars, especially foreign dollars, you know, to the Mexican economy, um, creates a skilled labor force. It does so many things, and, um, you know, hopefully they will press forward in a positive manner, but, you know, you never know. Mentioned in that skilled labor force, there is an article that came out that is where the, the oil and gas industry is fearing a skill shortage. We mentioned this, I think, six, eight months ago. We talked a little bit about the way the, the industry is moving with the automation, that there is going to be a distribution of labor that is going to begin to highlight higher skilled uh, individuals and they're going to be more specific skills that maybe are not as developed uh, as they as they will be in the next two to three years. So this article basically says that almost half of oil and gas industry professionals around the world see a potential skills shortage as the biggest worry in their sector. So what they're worried about is will there be people to do the jobs that are necessary and these are not jobs that just anyone can come in and do. They don't require necessarily a Strength. There's a, a certain amount of expertise that's got to be developed over over years of study and practice to to be ready to do some of these jobs. And they're saying that there is a huge gap in what they need moving forward as it becomes available. Yeah, I, it's funny, Josh, because as you mentioned, we talked a while back about well, there's not going to be jobs because automation, and now we're saying um, there's going to be not enough people to do the jobs that there are, that there, that we have available. Mm. And so it's like you know, depending on the on the, the day depends on what's going on. And, I, you know, obviously automation on some level is a problem. We kind of address that, our thoughts on that. But the, the, the labor force issue is quite, is, is, I think to me, is I'm not nearly as concerned about it, and here's why. Um, so the automation issue takes a different tra- tra- trajectory. But if you have a labor force, you don't have, you, you have people that you need to hire and they're not coming to work for you. Well, you know, what what probably happen is you'll just probably pay more money and you start paying more money people start doing it i mean people get on them crab boats dude and they go out there and catch crabs that's because they pay them a lot of money to do mm-hmm. it you know and if you quit paying as much money people probably wouldn't go to the crab boating or you probably have some but not as many um so if there if there is a true shortage of manpower uh if there's a true issue of man, manpower coming in the permian um what you're going to see is a response from industry saying we got to pay more we have to do more scholarships we have to do more stuff like this and so the, they will eventually figure it out you know i know it's a concern and I think part of the issue we're seeing here on some level, it, it, it definitely is a real concern. I'm not denying that. But I think part of it is you're seeing so much, at least when me and you, Josh, were you know, in high school coming out, there were, you know, you got to go to college, you got to have a four-year degree, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I, I think when you look across the oil and gas industry, what we really need and what we have needed for years and years and years is a lot of you know, on-the-job training, a lot of on-the-job training. 
Do we need some college degrees? Sure, nothing wrong with that. We need a lot of on-the-job training. And so when you start telling people, go to college, go do this, go get this degree, then you have an upswing, and then you have a downturn. You have all these things. All of a sudden, they go, you know what? I got this college degree. Uh, I got this debt associated with it. Let me go find something a little bit more stable instead of getting someone in there, um, training them how to you know, work a job, work multiple jobs. That's another thing that we have in oil and gas is most people are specialists just because of the nature of what they do. So I, I'm not as concerned as others. It could be an issue for sure, but I think the market will correct itself if either paying for paying a better salary um, maybe more perks, whatever the case would be, you know, start more in-house training. I don't know what the exact solution is, but I, I, I'm not as concerned as others that this is going to be the uh, the end of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, well, when I read it, my thoughts were, if you're hungry, this is a great article. I mean, this is a great, right. great news, great opportunity. Uh, there's a guy named Gary Vaynerchuk that he puts out some information on people, you know, adapting. And uh, just my, my thoughts when I read this, is this is great news. I mean, if, if you got people out there that are willing to put in the work and go in and put in the time to, to master some of these things, there's going to be uh, wage increases. There's going to be uh, opportunities that are going to start coming out where people will have the ability to shoulder more responsibility, take home more, and, and be more successful. So, uh, Yeah, if I'm, you're in the industry, this is great news because it's like, well, I'm already here. So yeah. if there's less people, then we supply and demand makes it pretty simple. If there's mm-hmm. less of me then there's more demand for me, which makes my rate go up. Go up. So that's, exactly. That's, exactly. So <laughs> that's, that's good news. Yeah, that, that was kind of the way I read it. Uh, I thought, well, this is actually good news. I mean, there are going to be some difficulties, uh, no doubt. But my first thoughts were, at least it's not the other way around, and we're saying we're you know going to have a huge shortage, shortage of jobs. That's not, the, that's not the way we're projecting this over the next few years. So good news all around there. And I think, Ryan, we are done with the main articles. Now we're going to move to the Texas Roundup, where we cover some news, jobs, opportunities, startups, uh, mergers, acquisitions that are that are happening. May give you a, a heads up about something that may bring an opportunity for you or your business. First one that I have today is from Kalanesh Energy. A Texas startup buys rights to drill 100,000 Louisiana acres. Bellin... Valendera uh, Energy Partners was formed by investors of Texas private equity firm, and they're buying uh, some assets, and they're going to be drilling in Louisiana. So we'll link that in the show notes if it's something that might might provide opportunities. They are Texas, uh, Texas-based, and they're doing some work in L.A. Uh, there was another article that came out this week, not particularly related to the Texas scene, but New York, um, they have people in the media that are there's a mantra going around keeping in the ground their anti-pipeline agenda so in new york that is going on and i don't know if many of our listeners follow the news but there are some um, candidates in new york that are planning to run for president and uh, i just wonder how some of these agendas are going to play out on the national scene so something to definitely keep our eyes open to and definitely take um, make make efforts to be aware that way we can kind of see what what the general trend is in the in the economy and in the oil and gas industry at the national stage. One yeah, last and just, just well, hold on real quick on this. You know, earlier we, we talked about having a a very well reasoned philosophical and legal debate about the building of pipelines and property rights, and this is the opposite of what we're talking about. <laughs> so if you're talking about having a, a real 
a well a well rounded discussion on how to build pipelines and you know mineral rights versus service rights and things like that. Um, this would show you what happens when you don't have those types of discussions and how how it actually costs you. So this is the the opposite side of that debate. Yes, absolutely. And the last one, we have some interest in tech. We've had people that have asked about technology, and so anytime I see something uh, regarding technology in the industry, I always like to mention it and talk about it. Uh, BP is going global with a seismic tech. It's a, it's a billion-barrel bonanza is the title of the article. They're using this seismic um, imaging that found an extra billion barrels of oil in the Gulf of Mexico. This seismic imaging is something they're planning to take to Angola, Brazil, and uh, it's an offshore-based uh, device, but it's helping them locate areas of higher concentrated oil and gas or, you know, oil, crude oil in the ground. So um, any, anytime I see anything technology-based, Ryan, I like, to, I like to do a little research on it and mention it because at some point they may be able to use something like that. Not necessarily that device, but something that is related to it on the land side or in other areas that may be more related to us. Good deal. Oh, uh, good deal. I Go forgot, I forgot uh, to do the reviews at the beginning of, of the oh. uh, beginning of the show. I completely forgot. So uh, sorry about that. Way to go, Nate. Way to go, Nate. <laughs> Nate, man, you made me forget. Come on, Nate. God, All right. Dude. So the first one we have Spikner. Um, he he gave us a five star review. Highly recommend. Great co hosts, which play off each other quite well. Make Texas oil interesting for us oil equity investors. Hope your podcast will get syndicated. Much bigger market out there than just Texas. Good luck. Well, Spikner, we, uh, we're, we gotta, we're talking a little bit about that, and we are discussing some different options, and we may have something that we're going to mention here pretty soon. Um, we'll get back to that, uh, Spikner. We'll maybe have some information on some things we're working on in, uh, in the next couple of weeks. Tyler Hardy, another five-star review, exceptional podcast, outstanding podcast to keep me updated in the oil and gas industry. Driving over an hour and a half every day each way in West Texas. It's podcasts like these that keep me awake and entertained, entertained as time flies by. Spikner and Tyler, really appreciate the review. Really appreciate the written content there and uh, appreciate the five stars. Don't forget, if you want to go on a fishing trip with me and Ryan, head over to TexasOilAndGasPodcast.com. Subscribe there. You'll be entered to uh, go on a trip with us at Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. Texasolgaspodcast.com. You go to slash fishing right there, and uh, you can sign up. You just need your name and email address, I think, is all you got to give us, and we'll get you signed up to go. Just one final thing before we get out of here. If you do go, be prepared to bait Josh's hook for him. And until next time, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.